Welcome to our very first episode of Housing for Us. My co-host today is Scott Carey. Scott, why don't you introduce yourself? Hey there, uh, I'm Scott. I am one of the co-hosts of uh, Cream City Social, which is um, a, a podcast uh, for and by the Milwaukee DSA. Uh, yeah, I don't know. That's, 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 I guess, it. So we're happy to have you. So thank you so much for, for coming on today. Yeah, yeah, happy to be here. Thank you. Um, so since this is the very first episode, this one's going to be a little bit longer um, because we're going to spend a little bit of time at the beginning of the episode here mapping out what we're hoping to accomplish. Um, and so uh, basically the show, the way this show is going to work is we're going to alternate between uh, happy episodes and sad episodes. And we're still kind of trying to figure out a, a good a good way to a good thing to call these. Um, so I think for our for our sad episodes, we're going to call these the the fixer upper episodes. Um, and uh, and so the fixer upper episodes are all about our housing system, uh, you know, kind of needing to be uh, fixed up a little bit. Um, and the reason that we're doing these episodes is because not everyone knows just how bad the American housing system is and how badly we need to reform our housing system. Um, so a lot of people don't know that homeowners have lost their home in foreclosure over a payment shortfall of less than a dollar. Um, you know, lots of people haven't thought about foreclosures or evictions being caused by, you know, somebody gets sick and, uh, you know, they couldn't afford their rent or their mortgage payment because they had to pay for medical care. And then, you know, more and more people are understanding that evictions are a really serious problem. Um, but here's a clip from our very first um, Fixer Upper episode. Uh, it hasn't been released yet. Let's uh, let's take a listen. This is the first time I've lived in like a single family home. And I've lived here, I think, for five or almost six years now. Um, and that's that's by far the longest I've ever lived anywhere. It feels a little unusual. Like I always, yeah, I come back to the exact same place and like. I know this area a lot better, um, started to like actually meet neighbors, you know, instead of moving every couple of years and you don't really get to know anybody. You know, thinking about having a child was like, well, I absolutely have to like own a home before I do that. But yeah, I'm hoping to kind of have that sort of stability for her. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So what, a, well, that's something, uh, I think people can take for granted really easily is just the little like benefits and perks you get of being able to live in like the same area for <laughs> an extended period of time. Like, I mean, that just makes like certain things, you know, knowing where the post office is or like blah, blah, blah. Like, I think that's something a lot of people take for granted. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, so Nick moved, uh, he thought nine or 10 times, um, just as a kid between age zero and 18. And, you know, I think of how as a kid, I got to know all my neighbors and our games of kick, kick the can and uh, ghosts in the graveyard. We'd, you know, we'd do every night all summer and, uh, you know, just, just not having that. It's just so hard on families to be moving so much. Yeah, especially for a kid too. To like, yeah, you're you need those like uh, social connections as a part of your like development, and uh, yeah, it's it's harder to do that when you're constantly moving. Yeah, it's I mean, it's just so hard on families. Increasingly, people are saying, you know, we've got to have guaranteed legal representation for tenants in eviction court, and that's a really you know that's a really great idea. Um, but our problems with housing instability are so much more fundamental than that, and unfortunately, evictions are only the tip of the iceberg. Um, so, you know, in a, in any given year, um, between uh, one in five and one in three. Uh, American renter households will move. Um, one in three renters will move every year. Um, that's, um, you know, that's outrageous. And we, you know, nobody likes moving. And we know that people are, you know, they're not choosing to move. They're moving because they have to. You know, Nick said that um, if his family could have stayed in the same place for those, you know, 18 years of his whole childhood, they would have. Um, they didn't ever want to move. They only moved because they had to. Um, and so this is just an issue that a lot of people don't understand, and uh, we're hoping to fix that with this uh, with this next episode.
Yeah, I mean, it seems like basic, like, empathy. If you've been fortunate enough to, like, move because you want to, because you're, like, upgrading your house or, like, moving to a neighborhood you like better, that still is, like, horrible. <laughs> like, that's yeah. still, like, the worst. So just imagine now if it was, like, you know, under, like, a worse situation, like, you know, under duress or whatever. Like, yeah, it's Yeah, you it's got a toddler. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, God, yeah. So that's our fixer upper episodes. Um, so and then so that's gonna be half the episodes. The other half are gonna be uh, happier. Um, and we're still trying to come up with a name for this. I was thinking maybe we should you know call it Cribs, like kind of an homage to MTV <laughs> Cribs. Um, you know where in, instead of uh, you know instead of looking at the housing of the rich and famous, we're looking at the you know fabulous housing of ordinary people who happen to be in these really great housing programs. My wife thought that was a really lame thing to call a show. Um, she thought too many people wouldn't get it, but um, we'll, we'll see what we come up with. Anyway, um, so the point of these episodes is is to say, hey, if we're going to achieve housing for all, we're going to have to make some really big changes to our housing system. And today's episode is about the Mitchell-Lama uh, program in New York City. Um, so these are housing cooperatives. They're um, big buildings with dozens or hundreds of units of housing, right? This is in New York. Um, and they're affordable and they're structured so that they will always be affordable. And in order to achieve housing for all, we're going to have to have a lot of homes that are like Mitchell Lama homes where they're forever affordable and change is scary. And a lot of times when you hear about a new idea, your first reaction is, well, what about this unintended consequence? Or, you know, what about that unforeseen difficulty? But when we actually talk to someone who lives in one of these programs, you're not going to think about unintended consequences or unforeseen difficulties. You're going to be a little bit jealous. And that's what we're trying to accomplish. So let's take a listen to the first segment of our interview today um, to see what I mean. Um, so in this clip, I had asked Dick if, um, you know, if somebody could tell just by walking into his building that it was different uh, compared to the buildings around it. At first he said no, um, but then as he started talking about uh, his home, you know, it was clear that his building really is very special. Um, so let's uh, let's take a listen to that one. I mean, of course, you could look at the on the wall. You could look on our bulletin board. You can see the announcement of the board meetings, the committee meetings, the swim club, the Tai Chi group. Um, the uh, you might see announcements of social events. Um, you might notice that it's uh, getting cold here. So our community room is now open as a play space. If you had come here during the heat wave of the summer, you, that same community room, which has two air conditioners in it and a small kitchen, um, was a cooling center for those shareholders who couldn't afford air conditioners. So... Um, you also, if you were here in the summer months, you might see our gardeners at work. Um, most of those, all of the gardening is pretty much done by shareholders. We have, um, we have a families committee that um, plans social events. We have a Halloween party, a Christmas party, an Easter party, all this other good stuff. So there, there, is, there is a sense of, of community here. Um, most people look, know their neighbors and look out for their neighbors. We, also, we were very badly hit by Hurricane Sandy. Avenue C was uh, a river three feet deep. The water came up to the handles on the car doors, flooded our lobby, took out the electricity um, and, and the water and, you know, and, and so um, people checked on their neighbors. People, you know, looked in, made sure that they had what they needed. Other people who could, when the waters receded, um, uh, did shopping for people who had mobility issues. Um, and that has now morphed into a permanent group, the Emergency Task Force. So we have floor captains who know all their neighbors and know what their health needs are, mobility issues are, um, 
and we are ready for the next flood and the next power failure. Um, that also is a, an indication of our sense of community. Well, hey, it didn't take that long. I'm I'm jealous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was um, clearly a very special place. You know, the fact that it's a cooperative and they're all homeowners and they've been there for years and years. You know, Dick moved in in the 60s. Um, you know, just a lot of time for that to develop. Um, but also just kind of the structure of, uh, of you know, owning that cooperative as, uh, you know, as a building and just kind of working together. And so, you know, what we're trying to accomplish here is to say, look, reforming our housing system might sound really scary, um, but... You know, these episodes are all about how we really will be happier living in a transformed housing system. You know, let's make sure we can all afford a place to live. Let's make sure we all live in a place that we actually want to call home. And let's make sure that nobody has to move unless they actually want to move. But in doing all this, we're going to have a stronger sense of connection and support with our neighbors. And that's something that everyone wants, just uh, just to belong. He mentioned like the hurricane, just from a like pragmatic standpoint, you, you, it's, it's better to have those, uh, connections for when, you know, shit hits the fan, yeah, uh, or, so to speak. Right. Yeah. Or just to have, uh, you know, have a, a, a party every single holiday. Yeah. Or even that just like, and the, and again, that's something if you're like moving, you know, uh, you know, every year or even more, it's that you just, you can't have that. So, uh, because this is the very first episode and, uh, you know, we wanted to tell you what you can expect if you subscribe, uh, we did things a little out of order. So, um, if you're confused, that would be why, um, we're going to play a little catch up right now. So we just heard about how great it is to live in a Mitchell Lama building. Uh, but what actually is the Mitchell Lama program? Um, so Mitchell Lama is an affordable housing program run by New York state. Um, it's built about 60,000 units of limited equity cooperative housing in New York City. Uh, so what's a limited equity cooperative housing? Like, what does that mean? A lot of people don't know what that is. Um, have, you heard of, have you heard of that before? Mm -mm. The cooperative is similar to a condominium. Um, so it's a large building with many units of housing, and the residents are homeowners, right? You own your unit of housing. Now, in a condominium, the building is owned and managed by a for-profit company. In a cooperative, the building is owned and managed by the residents who live in it. Make sense? Yeah. So that's when he was saying shareholders. If you own uh, like a stake in the cooperative, then you're a shareholder, yes? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, if you own a unit, uh, a unit of housing in that building. Um, and so... You know, you're, you pay a monthly fee to support um, the, you know, the common areas, the building itself. Um, and if, uh, if you're in a condominium, it's going to a for-profit company and they decide what they're going to do with that money, how they're going to manage it. Um, if it's a cooperative, residents take turns serving on the management board and they're the ones that make those decisions. And they're selected in annual elections. Um, and so, you know, Dick talked about his cooperative having a really nice garden outside. Um, so if the residents of a cooperative want to spend their, you know, some of the building's money on a garden, then they can decide to do so. Um, but if the residents of a condominium want to do that, the decision is up to the owners of the building. You know, the owners probably don't live in the building. Maybe they don't care if, uh, if there's a garden or not. Something we don't have a lot of, you know, really outside of New York City, there aren't a lot of cooperatives in the United States. Um, a lot of people just have no familiarity with that. Um, but Mitchell Lama cooperatives are a special type of cooperative. Um, they're called limited equity cooperatives. And that means that you can only sell your home for an affordable price. Um, so if you're in a cooperative, you're a homeowner, um, you can live there forever um, until you decide you want to move out and sell your home. Um, but with a limited equity provision, you can only sell that home for an affordable price. So these Mitchell Lama units are forever reserved as affordable housing. Yeah, they're like uh, inflation proof. Is that a fair way of putting it? Or, or just like you can't, how, how does that work then? Like if, um, 
How do they decide what an affordable price is? So we'll we'll get to that in a minute. Um, but basically, um, you okay. get back what you paid in and nothing more. Um, so there are uh, some cooperatives to you know to buy a unit, say on the Upper West Side, uh, to buy a, a unit in a normal housing cooperative. Studios will go for three or four million dollars. Um, so, yeah. but because these are limited equity cooperatives, the you know the Mitchell Llama Co-op next door. Um, those units are selling for thirty or forty thousand um, dollars for like a for like a two bedroom or a three bedroom. Whereas like the studios, the market gotcha. rate studios are selling for a few million. Gotcha. So so it's you can't sell it for more than what you paid for it. Yeah, yeah. So um, the calculation works so that you. Um, you get back uh, the down payment that you put in to buy it, and then your contribution to paying off the building's debt. Uh, that'll make a lot more sense as we uh, as we listen a little bit more with Dick explaining how like how the program works. So Dick's co-op is in uh, is in Alphabet City, and so you know I should say uh, this was right before the pandemic. Um, so I wasn't as uh, I wasn't as kitchen at his kitchen table interviewing him. Um, so, uh, but this was before the, right before the pandemic. Uh, right, so right. now if you've never been to New York, Alphabet City is a neighborhood in downtown Manhattan. It's part of the East Village, which includes NYU. Uh, it's also near upscale New York neighborhoods like Soho, Greenwich Village, the Bowery, um, some kind of more famous neighborhoods. It's, you know, it's right next to those, um, Alphabet City is yeah. not one of the most desirable neighborhoods in downtown Manhattan because it lacks easy access to a subway station. Um, you know, but this is downtown Manhattan and downtown Manhattan has some of the most expensive housing in the entire country. Right. So like Wall Street totally. is in downtown Manhattan. It's in yeah, high demand yeah, for, for sure. Um, and so Dick lives on the top floor and it's, you know, it's a really nice home. Um, there's hardwood flooring throughout. Uh, just, you know, nice appliances. It's very spacious by the standards of Manhattan. Um, you know, just from Dick's five-minute tour before I started recording, you know, it's a place that anybody could call home. Um, so here's uh, Dick talking a little bit about uh, about his house. I have three bedrooms, two baths. There's a pool in the building. Um, we have a garage. Um, I have a space in it. Yeah, so it's it's nothing nothing too crazy, but like definitely, um, you know, it sounds like a, a he's describing like a middle class home more or less. Yeah. So yeah. So I mean, it's a nice place to live, but then um, the view is spectacular. So Dick called it his million dollar view, and really, it's as good a view of the New York skyline as you're gonna see anywhere. Um, so we walked out on his deck, and I snapped some photos. So the cover for this episode is one of those shots. Um, really was a pretty, um, pretty, pretty spectacular view. It's normally to live there under like the, uh, traditional, like, uh, method to have that view. You'd have to pay like, you know, a million dollars or whatever, and then be living in like a closet. Exactly. And the Mitchell Lama program really just, you know, preserves those, uh, you know, those things for ordinary people. Um, so we already played the clip about, you know, what a great place Dick's building is to live in. Um, there's another really cool thing about the Mitchell Lama program. I was actually about to turn off our mics when, uh, Dick said, oh, wait, one more thing. Fair housing. That was our idea. Mitchell Lama housing is the original fair housing from the beginning. Stuyvesant Town, when Stuyvesant Town went up, it was for white people. They, Metropolitan Life made a, built a separate development up in Harlem for black people and yet a third one up in the Bronx, Parkchester. But they kept this as an all-white development. From the get-go, Mitchell Lamas have been integrated. And um, our waiting lists are by lottery. Everything is totally open. It's free and fair. And it's a matter of principle, and we're kind of proud of it, you know. So, you know, it, it took uh, the Trump organization. The Trump organization was still refusing to um, 
rent to black people in Queens as late as the 70s, where the Mitchell Lamas of Queens had all been integrated for like, I don't know, 15 years. So it's really kind of extraordinary. And there was an article about three years ago in Nation magazine of the most diverse zip code in the United States of America. And guess what? It's the zip code for a Mitchell Lama in Brooklyn called Lindsay Park. And it's right there on the Bed-Stuy Fort Greene border and everybody lives there. Black, white, Hispanic, Asian. It's really incredible. And so this is a, you know, this is another another achievement, if you will, of, of the Mitchell Lama program. It's been pretty good as a fair housing program as well. Wow. <laughs> That's uh, I did, uh, the, the Trumps. I'd always heard, uh, I don't think I knew specifically, like when they were still doing that um, segregation stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's a real problem, um, even though it's, you know, technically integration is the law of the land. Housing segregation is still a huge problem in the American housing system. We just haven't uh, managed to solve it. And, you know, when you ask people in surveys, large majorities of Americans say that they want to live in racially integrated neighborhoods, you know, but unless you take proactive steps to ensure integration, it's just not going to happen. Um, and so the Mitchell Lama program is able to accomplish it. And if you didn't believe me that I was at his kitchen table, um, you can hear his wife milling around in that clip, uh, trying to be really quiet. Uh, so, so let's uh, let's go into the nuts and bolts about how the program actually works. The concept of shared equity housing is that the individual shareholder makes an investment, right? So when I bought this co-op that you're sitting in, I bought it for probably around $4,000, which was about 5% of its total development costs back in 1968. The other 90% of it was financed through a very, an excellent long-term loan. And the debt on the building is not my personal debt. I have no mortgage. I pay a monthly maintenance charge. And part of my, the, the, what I pay in my monthly maintenance charge goes to service the debt on the building. I pay about $1,000 a month. And that is my unit's fair share of what it actually costs to operate and maintain the building. I pay probably close to the top of the line in this building because I'm in the largest apartment available and I'm on a high floor. Okay. So, um, and like any other co-op, we have a share allocation. And the share allocation, and this is trivia, the share allocation actually goes up every fifth floor. So my $1,000 is on the high side. Okay. There are people who pay much less, but they might be living in studios or one bedrooms or two bedrooms, or they might be on a lower floor. What does that cover? It covers everything that has to do with operation and maintenance. I'm, it, that means the property manager, the lawyer, the accountant, the insurance, maintenance and repair, the superintendent, our staff of about 15 guys, security, fuel, utilities electricity, gas, and taxes, and debt service. Okay. Now, I have a bigger monthly bill than that because I also pay a little extra for my parking space. And we are master metered in this building, so I also get a chunk of the electric bill. So by the time I'm done paying, uh, my thousand probably looks more like... Um, 1300 it, it's still an incredibly good deal and it is still a not a, basically a not-for-profit deal mm -hmm. and it is it, it has stayed so cheap because the building has never been bought and sold it's never entered the speculative market nobody's ever overpaid for it and loaded up with loaded it up with debt um, and nobody is making a profit off the operation so you put all that together over a um, 
50-year history, and you end up looking pretty good. Yeah, it sounds like a a sound model. Like, yeah, that that at least for me, that's tracking like how it works. And then just going back to something you said before, where it's like new things sound scary. Uh, to me, it sounds like I don't know if the only person I can imagine it uh, sounding scary to now is you know somebody who's like uh, like Trump, like a real estate uh, tycoon or whatever. Uh, like somebody who is invested in like the current model of doing things. That's some really good foreshadowing for uh, the end of the episode, actually, um, where we're going to talk about some of the. Does, does Trump make an no, appearance? Trump does not make an appearance, but um, <laughs> uh, kind of these real estate moguls, uh, they, they actually do make an appearance. Um, so but no, you're absolutely right. So I didn't uh, play this clip, but, you know, later on, Dick and I talked about how, yeah, this building's really unusual in some ways. Or the program's unusual um, in the sense of community, um, residents having complete control over their housing via an elected board. Um, but, you know, we talked about how just how ordinary it is, right? People pay a monthly housing bill. They pay an electricity bill. And that's it. They just go about their lives. Yeah, it's 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 really to me what it seems like is there's a lot of uh, cutting out of the middleman. That's what makes it uh, able to work. Right. Yeah. Everything's not for profit, and uh, it's never been sold. Obviously, transaction costs for real estate um, are you know really expensive, and so you know the fact that it's never been sold and the operations have all been not for profit over you know the building's fifty year history. Um, it, it, you know, it really, that's what it costs, you know, that's what it, that's what housing costs. Yeah. And then just to make sure that, uh, we're all on the same page about how it works. Um, so when a Mitchell Lama building is first built or acquired, um, people have to pay a 5% lump sum to move in. Um, right. So 5% of the, the building's cost comes from people, you know, making it basically making a, a down payment. And so for Dick in 1968, that was about $4,000. And, you know, you can, you can save up, um, you can take out loans to make that payment, um, but that's what it is. And then the remaining 95% is financed by public loans that the cooperative is responsible for paying back as a building, right? So they're not paying back as an individual or as a unit, right? Like you don't have your own individual mortgage. The building has, mm-hmm. um, has a mortgage and everyone together is responsible for paying um, the building's mortgage makes sense. It does, yeah, yeah. So, so if there were like something, to, the 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 burden of the debt is not on any one person's shoulders. right. I mean, you're contractually obligated to pay your you know your fair share, um, but it's a little it's a little bit different, right? It's you know for a condominium, you're getting your own individual mortgage, um, but that's not how it works for a cooperative. So Dick is paying about thirteen hundred dollars per month for his housing. And that's his fair share um, to of the cost to manage and maintain the building, and also to chip away at, at the building's debt, the loans that that they owe. Everything from the lawyer to the accountant, um, the building's insurance and maintenance, repair, the building manager, um, security, utilities, taxes. Um, he said they have a staff of of about fifteen people. Um, and then again, he's on the high side because he's got a large, you know, one of the largest units. It's the Uh, it's a three bedroom and it is on the top floor. So the higher up you get, the cost goes up a little bit and he's also got a parking spot. So your typical person is, um, you know, is paying under a thousand. And, you know, again, this is downtown Manhattan, uh, under a thousand per month. All right. So yeah, he, he's, he's got, uh, he's in like a high demand area, top floor with a great view and pays like a fraction of what you would, uh, pay under another model. Exactly. And, it, and again, like we said, that's what it costs to run the building. You know, there's no reason that it needs to cost more than that, except that there is, um, you know, if your operations are not for profit and there's no transaction costs over the years and that's all it, that's all it costs. Yeah. That's um, again, I'm jealous. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. So let's switch gears and talk about the affordable housing mission of the Mitchellama program. So in order to give me an idea of just how well this program has worked in preserving affordable housing, Dick told me about two other affordable housing programs he passed up in 1965 um, so that he could instead move into the Mitchell Lama. Let's take a listen. When I moved in in 1965, 
Um, I looked at three other two other possibilities. Um, all of them were about the same. In fact, this was the most expensive. First, I had to come up with that four grand, and then I had to pay about three hundred and fifty a month. There was a Section Eight deal down in the financial district, which would have been about the same. And then there was a possibility of moving into Stuyvesant Town, which was in anything slightly less expensive. So I'm still sitting here. I'm paying a thousand. The Section Eight deal timed out after fifteen years, and they're paying five thousand dollars for an apartment this size. And Stuyvesant, when MetLife finally sold it to a hedge fund, um, if you look on their website, you'll find three-bedroom apartments not as good as this one. Um, and and they're up around six. So this this needs a little explanation. So um, so Stuyvesant Town was that whites only building down the street that he mentioned earlier. Um, and so this was an, an affordable rental housing building that was constructed by MetLife. And so this used public loans from New York City. Um, so the only real similarity is that you know they're big buildings. And um, they used public loans. So Stuyvesant Town was uh, loans from the city. Um, Michelama is public loans from the state. Um, so in any case, Stuyvesant Town opened in 1947, and they charged affordable rents until 2002, um, when they converted to just a normal rental housing. And they started charging market rate rents. And today, market rent for um, for a unit like Dick's would be uh, $6,000 per month. And so Dick you know, obviously would have been forced out, you know, had he moved in back in the 60s, he would have been forced out um, by the cost in, in 2002. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I guess what I'm unclear on is, is so the Stuyvesant was started by MetLife, who was the, uh, who was Dix started by? Was that like a, a group of people got together or how, how does a cooperative like that, like get off the ground? You have to have the people who want to be in the in the building to apply for the financing. Gotcha. So and and that's they so they worked that out with the state then. Right. Yeah. So they would have they would have applied to the Mitchell Lama program for a public loan to to get everything started. Um, and so he talks later about um, about like a union that that actually built the first Mitchell Lama building. Yeah. Um, gotcha. Yeah. So then um, and then. MetLife is a, a private company, and so it was like this like private-public partnership, right, where there's a private building or a private company um, that's doing the building, and then the public is providing the financing. And then in exchange for the subsidized financing, um, they have to offer, um, you know, they have to reserve those units as affordable housing. Um, but the problem is that eventually they'll find a way to eliminate that, um, right? If it's left in in the hands of a for-profit company, like we just know that it's only a matter of time before they will convert that into market rate housing. You know, I mean, charging $1,000 per month um, versus charging $6,000 per month, like, you know, it's just a matter of time before they're going to find a way to privatize that. Yeah, the proof's right there in that building. Yeah. And then the similar one, um, he mentions a Section 8 program. So that's also down the street. Um, some people might be confused. HUD actually has uh, had two different programs called Section 8. It's kind of confusing. Um, he's talking about the lesser known one called Project-Based Section 8. This program just provides cash um, for private developers to build rental housing. And then in exchange for that help, they have to offer um, affordable rents. So then the other Section 8 is the one that's um, more well-known. It's the uh, housing voucher program, and that gives people a voucher for private rental housing. Um, and so he, this is a, a, the building he's talking about is project-based Section 8. So if you were confused by that, that's why. There's, there's two Section 8 programs. And so the Section 8 building, the same thing happened as with Stuyvesant Town, only it was more, much more quickly. Um, it took just 15 years before it was converted from affordable housing to market rate housing. Um, just 15 years. And so after only 15 years of living there, Dick would have been forced out. And right now the rent levels are at $5,000 per month. So it sounds like the 
public-private uh, partnerships are, uh, it's a slippery slope. Yeah, they, they don't last. Um, so there's a clear winner here, and the winner is the Mitchell-Lama program. Um, it just does a great job of preserving the public subsidy um, in creating affordable housing and, and making that housing affordable forever. So we talked a little bit about moving before. So um, so if you want to move, you can sell your housing um, for the lump sum that you paid when you first moved in. Um, and then part of your monthly payment goes towards paying down the debt of the building. And so when you sell, you also get back any of the principal of the building's debt that your monthly maintenance fee paid off. Um, so it's kind of like selling a home, right? If you had just a single family home and you sold it for the same price that you bought it, right? You'd be getting back your down payment plus whatever um, amount of your mortgage you had paid off. And that's basically what's happening here. So here's how Dick explained it. And this strikes us as eminently reasonable and fair because when you get back what you paid in, the next person on the waiting list then gets a deal which is just as good as the deal you got, in my case, 45 years ago. Yeah, this is the most, uh, like when I said uh, cutting out the middleman, this is what it really seems. It's just the whole like real estate industry. Get it out of there, I say. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it's amazing. Um, it was built decades ago. Um, but everyone who moves in benefits from that initial subsidy, and that initial subsidy is going to go on forever. Um, it's really amazing. Another uh, key aspect of the program. So Dick is a homeowner, right? It's a housing cooperative. Dick is a homeowner. So if he does move, he gets some cash from selling. And like we said, he can only sell his home for an affordable price, um, but he would get some money back. Um, whereas if Dick had gotten priced out of his Section 8 apartment or that, or gotten priced out of uh, Stuyvesant Town, he would have left with nothing, right? Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, so you, you, you get, uh, since you've been paying into it, you get a little something back, which is, again, like compared to rent and uh, in, in like, you know, the traditional sense now, it's just you're... If you're the renter, you're just flushing money down the toilet. You never right. see it again. You maybe get some of your security deposit back, maybe. Right, right, right. Um, and so uh, later on, Dick ballparked this for me. Like, how much would you actually get, uh, or would he get to sell his unit um, or somebody else in his building? And he said for somebody to move in, um, they'd have to pay a lump sum of twenty to $40,000, depending on the size of the unit, which floor it's on, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then again, you can, you can borrow that money, you can save up. Um, but once you're in, um, you know, you have to pay that upfront cost, but once you're in, um, your monthly charges are the same as everyone else. So probably less than a thousand dollars per month. Yeah. Which again, for, for, uh, downtown Manhattan, that's pretty insane. Right, right, right. And it's the same thing for, uh, for midtown Manhattan for, you know, the upper East side, upper West side where, um, real estate is even more expensive. And then these Mitchell Lamas are just kind of these islands of affordable housing and ordinary people, um, you know, living in these great neighborhoods, um, you know, by Museum Mile, by Central Park, um, by, you know, some, you know, world-class restaurants. And um, it, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's an amazing program. One of the most important decisions in designing programs like Mitchell Lama is that housing programs need to somehow be open to everyone, not just the poor. Um, so, you know, for example, public housing and Section 8 in this country, you know, we don't do this. Um, these programs literally force people to stay poor. For uh, public housing and Section 8, if you make even a dollar over the income cutoffs, you get thrown out of your housing. And so people yeah. will actually turn down raises and they'll turn down extra hours at work because, you know, if they if they go even a little bit above that cutoff, they'll get thrown out of their house and they'll be way worse off. So and then you have to make a choice of you can either ha have more income or be thrown out of your house. And so it's it's if you don't want to be forced out of your home, then your income is like capped at a certain that's nuts. Exactly. We're just forcing people to stay poor. Um, yeah. And that's a terrible way to run the world. And the Mitchell-Lama program doesn't do this. And so they, they accomplish this in two ways. Um, so first of all, the income requirements are actually pretty high. Um, so they do have cutoffs, but they're pretty generous. So anyone with an annual income below $99,500 can apply. 
Yeah, that's that's pretty reasonable. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, for a family of four, so that'd be for an individual. For a family of four, the cutoff is one hundred and forty-two thousand dollars per year. So pretty generous. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. But you know, housing is a struggle even for people at that you know at that income level in New York. Um, then the other thing is that you don't have to move out if you get a raise and you go above those income cutoffs. Once you move in, you're in forever. Um, so here's how Dick explained it. Everybody has to be income eligible when they when when they when they buy their shares. But if they do well and they make more money, they could pay additional rent up to 150%. So if someone was doing really well, um, that 1,000 could be 1,500. But then um, if they retire and their income goes down and they're on a fixed income, then the surcharge goes away. For year, I'm 74. For years during my working life, I paid the surcharge happily and that contributed to the building's income and made it possible that we could charge less to a lot of other people about a quarter of us at one point paid the surcharge and um you know and now i'm retired so the surcharge has pretty much gone away yeah so it's only <laughs> It's, you're paying it. It's it's you get that back later, more or less, right? Like it, because that's what happens to people: is your income goes up, it goes down. It's called life. Stuff happens to you. Like, yeah, I don't know. It just seems that seems very fair to me. Yeah, yeah, very much, very much. Um, so the last the last thing to talk about. Um, let's talk about some of the problems that the that the program is experiencing. Um, so overall, the program has created about 60,000 units of limited equity cooperative housing like Dick's. And I've got to say, the program works extremely well. The program's only real problems come from some of the short-sighted decisions to change the program from how it originally worked. So let's listen to Dick explaining the early history of the program. Is that it was based on the model of originally of the union built cooperative housing. New York had a tradition of cooperative housing being put up primarily by the needle trades, the amalgamated clothing workers union, and they wanted to house their members. Um, because what the private sector was offering their members were essentially slums. Right. And they came up with another model. If, uh, um, if we, if the, if, if the people who live in it actually own it and run it and operate it on a not-for-profit basis, then we could supply better housing to more people at a lower cost. And this was remarkably successful. And then what's happening in New York, it's 1955, um, and there is a tremendous housing shortage. It's after the end of the war. The soldiers have come home. They married. They've had kids. They want to build families. There is a shortage of 430,000 units of housing in New York in 1955. The vacancy rental rate is 0.8%. And if you're looking to buy a house, the vacancy on houses for sale is 0.3%. So there's nothing to buy. There's public housing for the very poor and some market rate housing for people who can afford a lot more money. And everybody else, it looks like the best deal would be uh, to join this suburban migration. And New York was genuinely concerned about seeing the middle class hollowed out. They just all leave. And, um, and so this united business and labor, liberals and conservatives, real estate developers and not-for-profits, and, and, and they passed this law. And it was based on the model of 
the co-ops that the unions had developed. And in fact, the, one of the major developers of the Mitchell Lama program in the early days was the United Housing Foundation, which is a creature of the needle trades unions, the Amalgamated Clothing Workers and the ILGWU, International Ladies Garment Workers Union. And they built the very first Mitchell Lama on property that they had adjacent to their first co-op in the Bronx, amalgamated, the Amalgamated Co-ops up in the Bronx. They, they built the first Mitchell Lama right next to it. And the first 74 Mitchell Lama developments were all co-ops. That was the model. And the 1955 law had no buyout provision. This was considered a perfectly valid structure of ownership and tenure. Um, and, and it could go on in perpetuity. Okay, uh, this one I'm going to need a little help on. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> so, so uh, the, here I'll tell you where I got lost. I, I was following, there was uh, 1955, post-World War II, there's a, a housing shortage. And um, I'm a little confused on the law that was passed in response to that. Oh, sure. That was the law that created the Mitchell-Lama program. I see. Okay, and, and so they created the Mitchell Lama program because they were afraid of the middle class completely fleeing to the suburbs out of the cities, yes? Right, because with a housing shortage comes rising prices. And so people were just getting priced out and moving to the suburbs, um, you know, was actually way more affordable. Um, and so, uh, so they were really worried about, about that happening. Gotcha. Uh, well, just because you originally had said that this was like a, a problem for the building, or am, am I wrong? Because oh, no, I right, don't see. Right. I, so, um, so that's how the that's how the program was initially set up. What happens after this? Um, well, okay. So actually, our was the rest of the clip pretty clear? After yeah, after that yeah. Okay, yeah. So it was um, uh, it was kind of based on this uh this model of of uh housing that unions were building for their members um because uh they you know their their members didn't have good options for housing and so the unions were building these cooperatives and so the Mitchell Lama kind of um was modeled off of that that idea and in fact the first Mitchell Lama building was um built by one of these unions that had built their cooperatives independently gotcha so okay so what happens next um, and so this is, uh, you know, this is how we get to some of the problems that the program is facing. So the ins and outs are kind of technical, but basically there was a later change in the law that created a buyout provision. And, you know, Dick really emphasized to me that the original form of the law had no buyout provision, right? The co-ops were limited equity co-ops forever, and it wasn't possible to change that. Um, but with these amendments to the program that came later on, if you get a two-thirds majority vote of all the households in the cooperative, you can privatize the cooperative. Um, that is, you can remove the limited equity provision. And so that means that people no longer have to sell their unit for an affordable price, but they can sell it for the highest price the market will bear. Does that make sense? Yeah, so if two-thirds of the people in the... Uh building decide that they just want to stop being a cooperative and start being a more traditional apartment building, they can do that? Yeah, so basically they're converting to a normal housing cooperative. Um, yeah. And so, again, some of these Mitchell Lama buildings are down the street from cooperatives where a studio unit sells for millions of dollars. And so, yeah. you know, based on their location and the high quality of the buildings... Um, this is potentially a million or millions of dollars um, that are on the line for, you know, for an individual household. So, I mean, this is just, uh, I'm speaking personally as myself here. They have the option to, like, sell out, more or less, if they want to. Yes. Right? Like, if they can be like, oh, this property is actually worth, like, a ton of money on the traditional real estate market. We're sitting on a, a, a fat check here. We can all throw this thing down the toilet and get rich. <laughs> that's a really good way of putting it. Um, that's a really good way of putting it. Um, 
and yeah, cause you're right. It's especially with these in midtown Manhattan and, you know, really anywhere in New York city, um, there's big money involved. And so, you know, these developers will search out residents who live in Mitchell Lamas and try to get them to privatize so that they can get oh. a slice of all that cash. Um, wow. Obviously, real estate. I can't is... think of anything scummier. That's awful. <laughs> right. right. Um, obviously, real estate is really big business in New York. And to be involved in these large, you know, in transactions of these big buildings, that's big money. And so, you know, they want a slice of that action. Um, and so Dick and some other Mitchell Lama residents from around the city, they go around to Mitchell Lamas that are targeted for privatization, and they make the case that it's actually not in your financial best interest, um, you know, to, to privatize. You're better off leaving, you know, a million dollars on the table. Um, and so, you know, again, the most desirable neighborhoods in New York are on the Upper East Side and especially on the Upper West Side. Um, so, uh, so Dick's going to talk about, um, this organization. So keep an ear open for those neighborhoods because, um, those were, you know, that's where the, the privatization fights are, um, the most difficult. I am one of the founders of a citywide organization called Cooperators United for Mitchell Lama. We've been around for about 10 years. We have fought the privatization battle numerous times. We have lost two battles, but we've won more than a dozen. I can do the roll call of our successes. You know, East Midtown Plaza in Manhattan, Inwood Tower in Washington Heights, Cadman Plaza in Brooklyn, St. James Tower in Brooklyn, Village View, my neighbors on the Lower East Side, RNA House, on the Upper West Side, Jefferson Towers on the Upper West Side, Rupert Houses on the Upper East Side, um, oh God, Rosalie Manning on the Upper East Side. The way Mitchell Lama co-ops privatize or try to privatize is that a group of, we call them the privateers, somehow get control of the board. And then they use the resources of the co-op the money that people have paid in monthly charges to hire the lawyers and the real estate agents and the real estate brokers and the appraisers to make the case for privatization. So in each one of these battles that we have won, we have been outspent and outgunned and won anyway. I feel like you could make like a great play out of this or something or like, (laughs) (laughs) right. This being New York city, like why wouldn't you make this into a musical? Yeah, yeah, or it just and there's lots of different like characters and perspectives and yeah, it seems like it could work really well. Yeah. Yeah, 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 no, there's everything there. Um but yeah, I mean, so you heard that, you know, they're up against a lot of money, they're up against real estate professionals and they still win. You know, and even on the upper east side and the upper west side. Um and so, you know, that seems outrageous, right? Like, how could it possibly be in your best interest to refuse the opportunity to sell your home for a million dollars? So, okay, so you're saying, yeah, why Why would you, why would you, if you can make a million bucks selling it, why would it be in your best interest? Right. I mean, because uh, in the long term, I th- the money you'd end up... Uh, well, no, 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 because you'd be selling it. Actually, yeah, I don't know. That's <laughs> no. It's... Why? Why is it in your best interest? So yeah, it's so counter. Other than it just being the right thing to do. Sure, it's absolutely the right thing to do. But they're not a you know, and they do say you know they do say what you know this is this is an immoral thing to do. But really, um, really they're appealing to people's pocketbooks rather than to their consciences. Um, basically, finding housing is really tough in New York City. And if your Mitchell Lama building is privatized, sure, you might sell your unit for a million dollars. But if you want to stay, you won't be able to afford to. Because once out of the program, your costs go way up. Um, and so, yeah. you know, the operations so are So you no- could move next door. You could sell it, get a million dollars, and then that's like three months rent next door. Right, right. Basically, yeah. Um, no, that's that's... So, like... Um, the taxes are calculated based on the fact that, you know, you can only sell your unit for $20,000. If you can now sell your unit for a million dollars, well, the taxes are going to go way up 
the operations are no longer nonprofit. You have uh, all these uh, transaction costs that you're now paying for. Um, your loan is no longer a state subsidized loan. It's a private loan. Um, and so you, when you add this all up, um, it becomes totally unaffordable for ordinary people to live there. Um, and so, you know, you'll have, you know, if you wind up privatizing your building, you'll have no choice but to sell. And, you know, once you do, you won't be able to live in that neighborhood anymore. Um, you're going to have to move someplace cheaper. You might even have to leave New York. And so yeah. you might have to leave your job. And then it's like, oh, God. Yeah, you've truly, you've you've sold out and now you got to go live in, you know, like Buffalo or whatever. <laughs> right, right. Um, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, so, yeah, you might have to leave your job. You might have to say goodbye to friends and family. And so privatization really only makes sense if you were already intending to move. And, you know, Dick told me that for most places, if you don't already have plans to move within three years, you're actually financially better off with the limited equity provision in place. And, and that's why they win most of their, almost all of their fights. Um, they're not appealing to people's consciences, um, but rather to their pocketbooks. So this is how Dick summed it up. It has been a struggle. You know, you are dangling lots of money in front of people. Um, and that's hard for people who's never, who, who never had a shot at that kind of money in their lives. Um, but then you realize the only way that you can get that money is by giving up your home and the deal becomes less interesting. If it all came down to go private, make a million dollars, we'd lose every time. And, but we make the case that, uh, this, if you want to live here, um, you're not going to get that money. You're only going to get that money when you're dead. One of the things I do when I make presentations to co-ops is I ask for a show of hands. And I say, how many people expect to leave in the next two or three years? You almost hardly ever see any hands. Then I said, how about the next five? How about the next 10? How about the next 20? You see a few more. How about, how many of you want to stay here for the rest of your lives? And most of the hands go up. And this allows you to explain why, well, everybody who raised their hand, it's not in your interest to go private. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. That just, uh, it's, um, if you go private, all of a sudden you're, you're, you're playing a different game. And the whole reason that you're in this building to begin with is because you don't want to be playing that game. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, we talk a lot at our organization about this idea that it makes perfectly logical sense that your home is an investment, right? Um, if the price goes up and, uh, you know, you can, you can sell it for a profit, um, but that common sense is just wrong, right? For most people, if you crunch the numbers, your home is not an investment. Um, most of your money is going to, um, to servicing the debt, right? Is going to, um, is going to your lender. Um, it just doesn't add up the way that, that we think it does. And you would be better off with housing prices low and staying low rather than housing prices that are high, but with the potential to rise so you can, you know, quote, make a profit. And that's really dramatically illustrated here, where people can literally sell their home for millions of dollars, but once they sit down and crunch the numbers, they find that it doesn't make financial sense to do so. They're better off keeping their housing prices low. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, so affordable housing makes financial sense, right? It's not just that we need affordable housing for people who lack affordable housing, um, but rather affordable housing is actually in everyone's best financial interest. Yeah, I love that. It's it, There's all kinds of lefty policies that like, I love when you can make the argument too that even if you're the most like cynical, like amoral person, there's still there's still an argument to be made like you know even more than it's just the right like kind thing to do if you just want to look at it totally selfishly it's still in your best interest exactly and i cannot come up with any better example than this right because we're talking about people who can only sell their homes for 20 to 40,000 dollars and if the cap is lifted 
then they can sell their home for a million dollars. Um, and yet they are still finding that it's better to keep that cap in place. Yeah. Yeah. It, it makes sense. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm glad that they're able to, I'm glad they've had way more victories than losses. Yeah, definitely. And so this actually leads us to another really important point that we talk about a lot at, at our organization here. Um, so Dick points out that enormous public investment has been made in Mitchell Lama homes, right? The loans are public. Um, the loans are, are the interest rate is subsidized. Um, and so because the public has made an investment in that, you know, those buildings, it's only right that something is expected of the residents in return. Um, and mm -hmm. so in our Housing for All podcast, we talked about this a lot in episode three and episode four. Um, all housing is heavily subsidized and, you know, therefore it's not unreasonable to expect something in return, right? Landlords ought to charge affordable rents and upkeep their buildings. Homeowners ought to accept selling their home for a fair but affordable price if they ever have to move. Here's how Dick explains Mitchell Lama residents' responsibilities to the public um, after the public subsidized their homes. So therefore, one of the first casualties of a privatization battle is the sense of community. There are people who really want to take the money and run, but they're usually a minority. And by the way, they get very angry at you not letting them take the money and run. They think they have a right to it in some strange way, that they deserve it. Um, which is an argument I totally don't understand. Somebody bought into a co-op at basically zero risk, has been subsidized for 10, 20, 30 years by the taxpayer, and then wants to appropriate the public's investment for their own private and personal benefit. I think it's totally immoral, and we stand up and say it. Yeah, I mean, it is, It is. I think, definitely, like, kind of selfish to be, like, trying to cash in on this uh, public program. Or, and especially with, like, you know, if a lot of these buildings have been around since, like, the uh, mid-20th century or whatever, then, like, uh, a lot of those people trying to sell it probably aren't the first, like, the original, like, tenants, right? So it's, like, you, it's this, like, system that you've, like, inherited. It's not yours to sell off. Exactly, exactly. Um, and, you know, again, if you take a listen to episode three and four of Housing for All, um, you know, this is a, an inescapable conclusion that doesn't apply just to Mitchell Lama residents. It is, it, you know, it extends to us all, right? In this country, all housing is heavily, heavily subsidized. Um, it's just not subsidized in an obvious way, right? Like with Mitchell Lama, um, they're, you know, they're public loans. And so it's easy to see where the subsidy is. Um, but, uh, all housing is heavily, heavily subsidized. It's just not easy to see. And so this, uh, this conclusion that Mitchell Lama residents owe the public in return, um, for the public subsidizing their housing, that really applies to us all. It, it applies to our entire housing system. So, okay. So our last clip for today, I asked Dick what changes he would want to make to the program. And honestly, they weren't very surprising. Um, basically, he wants more Mitchell Lamas to be built, and he wants to go back to the original program rules where buildings couldn't be privatized. The problem is that this is the first time we've opened our waiting list in 20 years, and we're not really going to open the one-bedroom and the three-bedroom waiting lists because we're oversubscribed. So all over the city, the demand for Mitchell Lama housing um, exceeds the supply in a phenomenal way. So the first thing I would do if I could raise a wave a magic wand is I'd build more of it. And the second thing I would do is I would make them all co-ops and not have a buyout clause. You know, when I uh, started recording with you here, I'd never heard the word Michelama in my life. I think if you like asked me what it was, I'd say it's like a 
new kind of alpaca or something like that. And <laughs> from having just learned about it, I agree that there should be more. Like, yeah, I, I think, you know, every city should have at least a couple. Like, yeah, I, it's if this were a pitch, I would be in. I'm sold. It's a really good idea. And it doesn't have to be massive buildings like they have in New York, right? Like you could have um, you know, four unit buildings that were Mitchell Llamas. Um, you know, the model would work just fine at a, at a smaller scale. Um, you know, it, it really would. And there's other ways to get that idea, uh, that limited equity thing into, um, into home ownership and, you know, in a way that's not a cooperative, like a community land trust is how you would do that for single family homes. So you're so, like, you could take like a city block and try to apply the same thing. Oh yeah, for sure. For sure. There's no reason we couldn't do this here. Um, instead of subsidizing luxury apartments or luxury condominiums on KK or Brady Street, we could do Mitchell Llamas. Uh, there's, no, there's no reason that this model couldn't work anywhere. And Dick is absolutely right that there's a huge demand. One New York City magazine called getting into a Mitchell Llama, quote, hitting the jackpot. They will close their waiting list for decades um, because they're in such short supply. Um, but then once they do open it up, um, so I, um, I think, uh, this clip wasn't, he told me this after I stopped recording, but he said that, um, once when they opened their waiting list in the the seventies or eighties, they had to get somebody's station wagon to go to the post office to get all the applications that had been sent. Oh in. man. And, you know, overall, you know, I got to agree, the program works exceptionally well, and there's really nothing to change except to build more and to eliminate the ability to remove the limited equity provision. Um, and, you know, it's obviously well beyond what we can talk about here, but Dick and I had a very long and boring conversation about the extremely simple finances of Mitchell Lama buildings. Um, and because the program is just so simple and the financing is just so simple, um, that simplicity means that Mitchell Lama is an extremely cost-effective program, uh, more so than most housing of that size. Uh, just everything about the program works really, really well. The, it seems like the only person who has anything to lose, again, is the the real estate industry. They're, it's just that uh, they're losing their opportunity to get in the middle of all this stuff. Right, right. So that's all the clips I had from our, our interview. Thanks for uh, letting me be the, the layman surrogate here and walking me through this. Well, thank you. Um, you know, the information is, uh, you know, kind of dense and dry. And, I you know, I couldn't have made this uh, an engaging episode without you. So thank you so much. And your, your home podcast, um, Cream City Social, they're really lucky to have you because you're a great co-host. Ah, well, thank you. And, 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 and uh, please feel free to, to come on uh, Cream City Social anytime. And of course, special thanks to Dick Heitler for inviting me into his home for an interview. I'm Chris Kirko, and our team for this episode included Aaron McKean, Sophie Haggerty, with special thanks to Kwong Nguyen. Check us out on the web at Housing For Us. That's housing4.us. We have so many more resources, all about the urgent and achievable goal of housing for all. Sorry, my cat just stepped on my keyboard.